For those of you who are live streaming, we've got one, one of the new LCD projectors on one of the screens, which is uh, considerably brighter and shows all the colors considerably more than what we've been looking at, which is, uh, resembles more what I see when I'm making the slides. And then people say, well, I couldn't see that. Well, you know, I can't see what it's going to look like till I get here. So, anyway, that's how we're, 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 we're starting. So, uh, a couple of announcements. Just a reminder that uh, if we have the kind of weather we're having in the next couple of days, on around October 16th, we'll have a fantastic picnic, especially if it's just about five degrees cooler. So that will be at October 16th at our Lando Solaces, and we will have maps and sign-up sheets and all of those things, I hope, starting this Sunday so that we can start getting people prepared to think about what they're going to uh, be bringing uh, for, uh, for the picnic. And we'll have that for everybody a- as soon as we can. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? In these days, when we watch the news, we see so much going on, we need to make sure that we trust God because we have no idea what's going to happen around the corner. And when we observe the fact that, there, that the that other English-speaking nations other than the United States are some of the most locked-down, tyrannical governments on earth with their heritage of liberty... We would never have expected that. Australia, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, uh, you would think that they had absolutely never heard of the terms freedom and liberty and inalienable rights. Oh, that's right. That's only in our uh, Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, actually. So that's what we have. So we need to be in prayer because the only thing that's going to sustain us if things get really bad and the only things that sustains a lot of the people who listen and watch the videos here in those countries. We have a number of people in Australia, New Zealand. We have some in South Africa. We have some in Canada. And this is probably like a lifeline for them to get scripture to be reminded of the promises of God and the goodness of God and the care of God because when things are dark and we live in uncertain times and chaos God is reminds us that it's always that way but we're the only real but he is the only real stability so we will take a few minutes to bow our heads and have silent prayer to prepare ourselves to study God's word this evening, if necessary, confessing sin. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are steadfast, that you never change, 
that you honor your word, you are absolutely righteous, and you are the source of all stability in the universe because you are the one who sustains the universe. Father, we're thankful that we can learn about you from your word. We can see in the examples that you have given us in history evidence of how you work in nations, specifically in Israel, which is distinct among all the nations. But we see patterns and we see uh, the types and we see and understand human behavior and the depravity of the sin nature in every one of us. And if it were not for your grace, we would be like these ancient cultures and worse, and in some ways we are. But Father, we thank you for your grace toward us and all you've provided for us as believers. And we pray that tonight as we study your word that you will again encourage us with the truth of your word and your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's been a couple of weeks since we had the last lesson, and that is because last week uh, there were just a number of things that weren't going well. We had the conference last week, which didn't affect Tuesday night, uh, but some of you know it. My uh, briefcase got stolen after church last week, and I lost my laptop and Bible and a few other things. So trying to get up and running again was uh, thankful only to iCloud, which had everything, but it took a while to get things started again so that I could be functional, And, uh, and so... Uh, thankful for those of you who knew about that and prayed, and hopefully that some of those things will be found. I don't know. God has supplied replacements, and I'm uh, grateful for that, that we can do that. So we're back to going over what we went through the last time, but I've added a few things, looked at a few more things than I'd l- had time to look at before. And we're looking at my favorite title here, When Lefty Killed Fatty and Escaped Through the Outhouse. And as I pointed out last time, this, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek in this. There's a lot of humor. There's a certain amount of satire as the writer in the inspira- under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit is really poking fun at Eglon and at the Moabites who together don't seem real bright. The corpulent, fat nature of Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, is a picture of the fact that he's basically what we would call just fat-headed, and he's not very bright, and he doesn't make really good decisions. But the and Israel Israelites, I pointed out last time when they read this, they would be laughing and poking fun at him, just as we laugh and poke fun at various political figures and celebrities when they're made fun of in various various cartoons that we see on the internet and in, and in newspapers. But the real joke is that God is saying to them, you see what a fat slob, not real competent that Eglon is, and you laugh at him, but the joke's on you because he's the one who's defeated you and has kept you under control for the last 18 years. And that's the point, is that when you get into spiritual darkness and you get into idolatry, it is more foolish and it is more stupid and it is more destructive than being under the control 
of a tyrant who is fat and not real bright and whose troops are not real bright. And so that's, that's the real lesson here. And God is also going to teach them something about the fact that they need to be, um, they need to focus on the fact that God's grace is delivering them. Now, as you read this tonight, I want you to pay attention to something. As we look through these verses from um, verse 11 down through verse 30, I want you to see what's different about this account in comparison to the account with Othniel. Other than Othniel's account, it's much shorter. But this is where you need to put your thinking caps on and pay attention to what is going on in in the text. So, as I pointed out last time, Daniel Block, in his commentary on Judges, makes the observation that while the sequence of the episode is clear, the narrator is obviously not interested merely in chronicling historical events, but with effective employment of ambiguity, irony, satire, hyperbole, and caricature, he sketches a literary cartoon that pokes fun at the Moabites and brings glory to God. Now, that's something that in our oversensitive culture today, poking fun is not thought of as something that could glorify God. Have you thought about that? And there are passages in Scripture where there's a lot of humor in those passages that's designed to bring out spiritual truth, and that's what glorifies God. So we've looked at the basic outline and... As we've looked at that, we see we're in the center section, the, seeing how the uh, leadership is more and more paganized. We go from Othniel, the first one who has nothing negative said about him, to Samson, who's the worst, who has nothing positive said about him. And I want you to look at how, how this might be displayed in the narrative, in the story, the way the story is told about Ehud. So remind you of the context of the divine indictment that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. And so when we look at this, forgetting the Lord isn't just like a momentary lapse of memory. It is an intentional decision to set God aside and take him out as a significant player in our thinking and in our lives. And it's displayed by what we put our emphasis on in our lives. They forgot God, but they're replacing him with the false gods, with the idols, with the Baals and the Asherah, and they are not worshiping God. They are worshiping instead these false gods. In the cycles of the judges, we see the pattern of disobedience, and then God brings discipline upon them, and then uh, he delivers them, and then some years later they will disobey God again, and the cycle just continues. And we see this go through the six major cycles of Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and finally Samson. So what we see in verse 12 is that the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So what they are worshiping are these idols. Now, one of the things that I had a little more time to work on this time, and I found them, actually, is uh, some pictures that will illustrate several things we're looking at. And if you look over to my left, your right, you will see how the picture ought to appear and see how much dimmer it is that we what we've been looking at. These are two idols that are seated. They are gods. Uh, the one on the left is appears to be. Uh, it could be. It doesn't have a name on it, so you have to sort of guess with these representations. But it could be Baal, or it could be El, who is the head of the pantheon. And they are sitting on their thrones. In this depiction, we have a ivory goddess. This is from approximately the same period of time. This is from around 1250 B.C. Here again is a figure of Baal. And remember, Baal is the storm god. He is really the powerful one. El is pictured as sort of he's older and doddering around, and he's been his power has been taken over by uh, the number two god Baal. And this uh, was found; it was roughly from the 14th to 13th century. So this is right in the time period that we're looking at. And look at the uh, fine detail in the uh, idol and the craftsmanship that you see in the gold of the head and the uh, uh, hat or whatever on top of his head. Here are some others, some figurines of Baal, also from the same time period. These are, it looks like they're made of clay, uh, some sort of fired clay or could be uh, some some metal, I can't tell for sure. And then here we have a, a, a stand that depicts the Asherah, and this is from the 10th century. So this is around the time of David and Solomon, so it's just a little bit later. But technology didn't advance in those days as quickly as it does now, so things hadn't changed a whole lot in between. This is also that that's a close up and you see the figures at the at the bottom looking over here you see them much better uh than on the screen on my right so we're introduced to God's agent of divine discipline and he is going to use uh Moab and the king of Moab and so we see in verse 12 the Lord strengthened Eglon now, the verb is to strengthen, to make strong, to empower, to give him the ability to defeat Israel. And the subject of that verb is Yahweh. It is God. God is the one who is uh, strengthening Eglon. And the text is making it clear that his ability to defeat Israel comes from God. And the reason that God is doing this is then stated in the second half of the verse. It is because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, I remind you that when in the Old Testament, most of the time when it says that Israel or one of the other countries are doing evil, it's more often than not, it is, um, it is related to idolatry, that evil 
is not, for the most part, related to sin as it is to worshiping someone other than God. When we look at the life of David, David committed a number of sins. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He then conspired to have her husband, when her pregnancy was later discovered, he conspired to have her husband uh, put in the front lines of the battle so that he would be killed. And he tried to cover, cover it all up. And that was an egregious sin. Later he commits a sin uh, where he is full of arrogance and pride to such a degree that God is going to need to bring a punishment upon the nation. And it's related to David numbering the people. Look how great I am. Look how large my military is. Look at everything that I've done. His arrogance had uh, ha- had been fed. And so the result was that God had to... Uh, had to bring uh, discipline. But David never did what his son Solomon did. He never took him into idolatry. And God's assessment of David's character was that he was a man after God's own heart. And that's an expression of the fact that he was always loyal to God even when he sinned. He was still loyal to God. He wasn't going to uh, betray God. And in the theocratic uh, nation of Israel where God is the king, when you worship idols, you're basically committing treason. And so David was did not do that as so many of his descendants did, Solomon and all of those kings in the north and many of the kings in, in the south. So the Lord strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab. And I want you to notice that Eglon is always referred to as Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon, king of Moab, until you get down to about verse 20. And then his name isn't mentioned again because now he is nothing but a dead mass of quivering, fetid flesh. Here's a map to get our orientation. We have the in the center, we have the Sea of Galilee at the north, the Dead Sea in the south, the blue to the left, to the west is the Mediterranean, and so we have Israel. The main area of Israel is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, except for the territories to the northeast on the other side of the Jordan. So if you're speaking from the perspective of Jerusalem, that's in Transjordan, trans meaning across, across the Jordan. And you have uh, two large groups present that are mentioned in the text, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Ammon basically controls the area of what today is central Jordan. Moab controlled the area to the south that was uh, southern, that today is southern Jordan. That is the area where Petra is located. And then we have Jericho. Now, in terms of the geography here, you have the Jordan that flows, and in the ancient world, it really had a huge flow of water. In the spring, with the melt-off of the snow from Mount Carmel, 
uh, and it was at flood stage. This is near the time when the Israelites crossed over and God parted the water just as he did the Red Sea. Now when you've gone to Israel, many of you have gone to Israel with me, you look down at the Jordan River at this location just above the Red Sea, and you know it's, it's maybe eight or nine feet across, and it's pretty shallow. That's because so much of the water is bled off into irrigation as it comes from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And because less water's been going into the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea's been gradually dropping uh, its, its uh, shoreline. And you can see places as you drive along uh, 10, 20 feet above the, the main road that drives along to the uh, west of the Dead Sea, you can see 30 feet up a line that was drawn in the early 1900s by the Palestinian Exploration Society. And now you look down to the other side towards the water, and it's two or 300 yards before you see the water. It's dropped that much in its, uh, in its depth. So... You had the fords here. They come into play at the end of the end of the story. And Moab that is down to the south, think about this militarily. How, if this is your territory of Moab, how are you going to attack uh, Israel? How are you going to attack those tribes on the other side? Well, you can either go around to the south and come up through the desert of the Negev, or you can go north and cross at the fords right here, this is, in fact, this is where, not too far, uh, probably about maybe 10 miles south, the fords are about 10 miles south of the um, uh, King Hussein Bridge, which is the Allenby Bridge, if you're on the Israeli side, and if you're on the Jordan side, it's the King Hussein Bridge, and that's one of the crossing points for the border, the other's way down at a lot, and then there's another one uh, up, up to the north. So this is a crossing, main crossing point here, and this was where you forded the river and you needed to. So I'm pointing that out now because that comes into play at the end of the story. So he's from, in Moab, and this is the archaeological remains and maybe the pres- some of the present town, but the ancient walls to some degree of the capital city, uh, Kirak, of, of the area of Moab. And again, we have a royal inscription here from Moab. And the reason to point these things out is to point out the fact that, that this demonstrates the historicity and the accuracy of the text. These are real people. There's a real uh, nation there. They have artifacts and towns. Everything fits the way it's told in the Bible. Now, if you read in other religious books, such as the Bhagavad Gita, our other Hindu text, there's no mention of anything of earthly geography because it doesn't happen in the real world. And the same thing is true about, um, about the Book of Mormon. They have all kinds of places and names and people, rivers and everything that were on the face of the earth during the times of the events in the Book of Mormon, but you can't go to any of those places. You can't point to them. You can't discover anything archaeologically. And trust me, uh, students from Brigham Young University have been digging up all over the Western Hemisphere uh, for the last hundred years or more trying to find something. And there's no geographical, historical evidence to support anything that's in the Book of Mormon. 
But you can go to Bethlehem, and you can go to Nazareth, and you can go to uh, where the grave was where Jesus was buried, and you can go to Golgotha where, uh, where he was crucified, and you can go to Jerusalem, and you can go to Jericho and all of these places because they actually exist because the Bible is telling true history, and we can rely on it. That's one of the reasons I thought it'd be fun to add some of these uh, pictures into the presentation. So the Lord strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And I pointed out last time, uh, the name Eglon is really kind of a name that they can poke fun at because it sounds like the Hebrew word Egel. You have the same uh, consonants in it and the same vowel at the beginning. And Egel refers to a bull or a calf or a fat little calf. And so Eglon is the fat little calf. And they're just poking fun at him because he, is, and the word also is from the root of Agal, which has the meaning of round or rotund. So you can just imagine all of the fun little nicknames and everything else they did in uh, with his name. And then the other word that we found here is chazak, the word for strengthen, which means to give him uh, military strength at the end of that list, to give him courage and military strength to have victory over, over Israel. And, of course, the last line in the side of the Lord tells you that uh, evil isn't your opinion or my opinion or some academic's opinion of what sin or evil should be. Evil is defined by God. He is the ultimate reference point for determining what is righteous, what is just, what is unrighteous, what is unjust, and what is evil. And what is usually referred to as one of the greatest of all sins is not an overt sin, it's the sin of arrogance. Mental attitude sins are the worst sins. Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. God scorns the proud. In 1 Peter 5.5, it is quoting from the Septuagint translation of that, God resists the proud. He stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so God has uh, brought war against Israel because they have become arrogant and they're choosing their own gods. Now, Eglon is further described in verse 17 as a very fat man. And this is a Hebrew word, bari ma'od, and ma'od is just equivalent to our word very or extremely. And it has a, 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 a dual nature to it. In Psalm 119.70, we read, Their heart is as fat as grease. Now, what does that mean? This is some kind of an idiom. What is the heart? The heart is the area of our thinking, the innermost part of the soul. And it's as fat as grease. It's bloated. It's dense. It's corpulent. Their thinking is described that way. So we use an idiom, something like that. We talk about somebody who's being a fathead. They're just, they're just dense. They, they're not quick-witted. They're not sharp, not intelligent. Also, we see that the word for uh, fat is a different word here, and it is the word chelev, 
which has to do with sacrificial fat, the fat that is reserved for God in an offering. And this is a foreshadowing that he's giving because Moab and Eglon are about to be sacrificed. God is mocking them. And we see this same thing in Psalm 2, 2 through 4, which is a picture of what will happen at the end of the tribulation, or in fact, during all of the tribulation, where the nations of the earth, the leaders of the earth, are going to set themselves against God. And they take counsel together, and they hate God. They um, claim that they are going to break God's bonds, and they're going to cast away his cords, that his anything to do with God is something they hate. They see it as something that's restraining, but God just laughs at them. He makes fun of them. He mocks them. And we see Jesus even poking fun at, at the religious leaders of Israel. And, you know, for, in our day, we say, oh, that's not polite. Make fun of people like that. They sincerely believe what they believe. But God understands the truth, and he makes fun of them. They're just like, like ants trying to act like they're uh, something big and special. So in the next verse, we see that Eglon decides he needs some help. So he's going to enter into an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, two traditional enemies of Israel. Now, I showed you this chart the last time. This is the genealogy of the Arabs. So we see Noah has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The Arabs come from his second son, Shem. So our word Semite derives from the name Shem. The word anti-Semite or anti-Semitic describes not just against all of the descendants of Shem, that would include the Arabs, but it is those specifically against one line of descent from Shem, and that are, that's the Jewish people. Now, when you talk about anti-Semitism, we had a current event today that demonstrates how the Congress of the United States is shifting into an anti-Israel and anti-Semitic posture. Now, many of us who have been paying attention to things have suspected that uh, the Democrats in Congress, for the most part, are simply giving lip service to their support for Israel. And this was made very clear a few years ago when there was the uh, treaty with uh, Iran and that, that, um, uh, that most conservatives rejected because they didn't think that it would, was sufficient and that there was no real safeguards that the Iranians would, be, uh, would comply with it. And yet it was something that President Obama wanted to uh, foist on the world and on the American people. And so he would come along and intimidate and blackmail and twist the arms of the Democrat members of Congress, uh, many of whom claimed, oh, I'm totally against it, but I'm going to vote for it. Because he was telling them in the back room that uh, Democrat Party is not going to give you another dollar. We're going to run somebody else against you. Or he would tell them that they've got some kind of 
uh, offense against them and they would make it public and shame them and blackmail them and force them into compliance. So every single Democrat, every single Democrat that for years had been claiming they loved Israel and they would support Israel no matter what happens, they folded like dirty laundry and they, they just collapsed. And we saw it again today. We're going, they have a huge bill that they want to somehow try to balance the budget or the spending. And, oh, the best way we can do that, we just won't give that billion dollars to Israel for Iron Dome that we've promised them. We're going to go back on our word. They don't really need that. This is important for Israel's defense to keep them safe, to keep them alive. And we at the United States government has been spending a lot, and we get a lot out of that. It's really an investment. But no, the anti-Semites in Congress have had their way. So we are seeing a full-bore expression of the devil's attack on the divine institutions in the United States. We got rid of individual personal responsibility a long time ago outside of the Bible believers. Marriage uh, fell about five or six years ago when the Supreme Court said it was legitimate to have same-sex marriage. The family has been on life support uh, for years due to the rise of divorce rates in this country and the failure of men to exercise their spiritual leadership responsibilities as fathers who are supposed to rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So those first three are, are almost totally gone. Uh, the idea of hu- human government uh, has been, I mean, it's so corrupt behind the scenes that that we're functionally a third world country. I had a man who was one of the prime uh, movers and shakers who enabled us to get West Houston Bible Church started about 17 years ago, and he is uh, in a position to observe things on an international scale. And uh, 20, what is this year? This is 2021. So about 23 years ago, he said, he said, don't believe what you see. The United States is already a banana republic. It's already a third world country. And I couldn't see that. But about eight or nine years ago, I began to see how true that was. He was so prescient. This nation is is sustained only by the grace of God now, and at any day we could easily uh, easily implode. And so we're turning our back on all of these things and nationalism because President Trump stood for nationalism and for America first. That so irritated the globalist internationalist crowd in Congress and in all of the bureaucracy, they've been working for years to build this, this globalist network, entering into all of these deals behind the scenes and everything else, that when he came along and was shutting all of those things down and standing for America first, and that we have to stand as a nation and be proud of ourselves as a nation, that was an, an embarrassment to the liberal elites. And so that's part of what energized their hatred for just those concepts was on display throughout the uh, election, lead up to the election last year. And I think it was all generated 
by this because Satan is out to destroy this nation and the best way to do it is to wipe out the divine institutions and they're all on life support right now. So we're turning against Israel. Then from Shem, the descent goes from Arphaxad to Eber to Peleg. Uh, Peleg is, uh, Joktan is his brother and he has He is the father of 13 Arab tribes. The line will then go through. I've got some of these lines got messed up as I transferred from PowerPoint to Keynote, and it's difficult to get them back. But it goes through Nahor and Terah, who is the father of Abraham. And so Abraham is the father of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is the progenitor of the Bedouin Arabs. Uh, Abraham's son Isaac is the father of the Jews. After Sarah died, he married Keturah. He had six sons with Keturah, and those are part of the Arab tribes. Then his nephew Lot uh, had incest with his two daughters. They got him drunk after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and one gave birth to Ammon, and the other gave birth to Moab. Uh, Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. Uh, Esau came out first, and he was not in the line of the seed, and so he is the father of the Edomites, and one of his descendants is the Amalekites. So this is what we see. The Midianites come from Keturah. So that gives you a picture of where the Arabs come from. They're not ju- a lot of people think it's just Ishmael and Esau, but you have the ten Arab tribes from Jotun, you have the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the Midianites, the other sons of Keturah, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. Now here we have a picture of the ancient uh, center of Amman. Uh, um, this is the modern town of Amman, this was in the, the uh, ancient capital of the Ammonites, and that's what's up on the hill. Now, if you are standing in Israel from this aerial, you are looking, for, you would have the Mediterranean at your back, and you're looking across in the, in the foreground, you would have uh, uh, Beersheba down here, and you're looking across the Negev, and this is the Dead Sea, and then over here you have the mountains in Jordan. So that gives you just a little perspective. Now the city where all of this happens is in the city of Palms, which is in Jericho. And this is a look at the palm trees of Jericho. And then this is the ancient tell. But I don't think this is where Eglon was because this was the tell that was destroyed by Joshua. This was the city. There's, there's I think, three different uh, settlements of Jericho, and this was the ancient one that was rebuilt. Remember, there was a curse that anyone who came back and rebuilt the gates of, um, the gates of, of Jericho would die, and that happened at the time that... Uh, Ahab was king in the in the northern kingdom, and this is recorded just prior to the events in the ministry of Elisha. So the area where where Eglon was was 
probably off to the, as we're looking at it this way, would be off to the left, uh, which would be to the west. So here it is on a map. You have Jericho here, just a few miles, short miles from uh, the Jordan River and the fords of the Jordan, Ammon here, Moab here. I'm going to skip these slides and go on to verse 14. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Why was this? Because in the covenant in Leviticus 26, God said he outlined five different cycles of discipline or stages of discipline that God would take Israel through, and it all had to do with the land. That's why I keep saying five cycles of discipline have nothing to do with any other nation because God only promised a piece of real estate to Israel, not to anybody else. And all five cycles have to do with what God is going to do to the land uh, because they are disobedient. So they're, not, they're going to have difficulties living in the land because of that. And eventually, in the fourth cycle of discipline, they will be dominated by foreign powers. And in the fifth cycle, they will be removed from the land until, they, until God brings them back. And all of these horrible things will happen. Uh, they'll be sick. They'll be struck with plagues. They will be defeated in battle. And that's exactly what we see going on in Judges. So they're defeated, and Eglon is ruling over them, and they serve him. And that word for served is the Hebrew word avad. has a range of meanings. It can mean simply to work. Uh, it can mean to serve, but it can also have the idea of being enslaved or even worshiping someone. So you have to look at the context. And in essence, they're enslaved to Eglon. Verse 15, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, God is going to graciously provide deliverance. The Lord raised up a deliverer for them. So what do we see? We see the Lord strengthened Eglon. Then in verse 15, we see the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera. He raises up a deliverer. And when you go to Israel, when you're in Jerusalem, you can see streets with the street names from all the different uh, biblical individuals. So here's Ehud Street. Now here's a picture of tribute. If you look on this uh, this wall, there's the depictions of various figures. These are depictions of tribute that is being uh, brought from Israel, and this is displayed on the black obelisk in Moab. So we come down now to where we're introduced to Eglon. And Eglon is, I mean, to Ehud. We're, we're introduced to Ehud, and Ehud is described as a left-handed man. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. The word deliverer is based on the same root as a, as salvation, Yasha. So it's not, he's not, he's not raising up a savior for them. He's raising up a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite. Now think back to the map. Benjamin the tribe of Benjamin has its border right around Jerusalem and just to the north of Jerusalem. So Eglon is coming from, the, from Jerusalem to the west of Jericho, coming to Jericho. 
But what we will see is he's going to depart by going to the northeast as he, as he escapes. But what we read here is fascinating. It, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, and the son of, sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, the thing that it's emphasizing is there's something distinctive about Benjamin, and that is that he is uh, that he's left-handed. So we see that God is raising them up, which is the same thing that we uh, that we saw with with Othniel. But there's also a level of silence regarding God. He's he strengthens Eglon. He raises. uh, I mean, strengthens uh, Eglon. And then he raises up Ehud, and we don't have any mention of the Holy Spirit. We don't have any mention of God specifically giving him the victory. That's what's missing. And so there's a hint there that, that something's a little different. God is not as active in this as he appears to be in, uh, in the episode with, with Othniel. So the, uh, as we look at this, his emphasis is on the fact that he's a left-handed man. And this is kind of an interesting statement in the Hebrew. It's the word iter, yad, which is the word for hand, uh, yamino. Yamino, remember that, um, that Joseph's younger brother was ben yamin. Yamin is the root there for, for left-handed, for left. So this is the idea. But it's, it really, the way this is structured, because that this word iter really has kind of the, a, a range of meaning uh, other than yad yamino, that word iter is a word that indicates that something is blocked. It has the idea of being shut up. So he is, or excuse me, the yamino is, um, is the right hand. So it's shut up to the hand of the right. Benjamin was a son of my right hand. So it is iter shut up to the hand of the right. So this indicates that he has either some deformity or some handicap possibly. But we have the same term used in Judges 2016, which refers to a whole unit of some 700 Benjamin warriors who are all said to be left-handed and extremely accurate with a sling. There's a different word that's used for uh, left-handed in other passages. So that indicates that this word iter indicates that they're not naturally left-handed. They have been all trained to be left-handed because in combat you expect if you're right-handed and your opponent is right-handed, you're expected to fight across. And if he's left-handed, you're going to be thrown off balance. Same way in baseball, you have to face a left-handed pitcher. It's going to be a little different if you're fighting in any way hand-to-hand. The other person's left-handed, and you're used to fighting those who are right-handed. It's going to be a little awkward. So it indicates that these men somehow had their their hand, their right hand, which was their normal uh, hand, uh, tied up or blocked, so they had to develop an ambidexterity 
with their left hand. So that, that's how you have so many left-handed slingers, is they're trained probably from infancy to use their left hand so that they would become ambidextrous. And so this indicates that he's had some kind of military training in his background. So they, uh, when he realizes that he's the one who's going to deliver Israel, that God has raised him up, he makes for himself a sword which had two edges, which indicates that it's not using, for, using it for hacking, but he's using it really to drive straight in uh, with a lengthy uh, penetration and stab wound. It's a cubit in length, which is about 18 inches. Uh, some cubits in Egypt were 21 inches, and it didn't have a hilt, which would prevent it from going all the way into this enormously fat man. And so it's going to penetrate all the way through uh, into his intestines. And so you have this, this penetration, and he's just going to drive it in and leave it there. But in terms of the military tactics at the time, he's going to hide it on his right thigh because he would be reaching down with his left hand to draw it from the right side in a cross draw, but that's not where he would be searched. If they're expecting a right-handed man, they're going to search for a sword on his, on his left leg. And we have a depiction here. This is from a, an Assyrian um, a depiction here of Asher Banerpal, who is on the left, uh, and he is the one who is holding a bowl. And this is from Nimrod in the ninth century. But if you look at it carefully in this highlighted version, you see the red red over here is the hilt of a a dagger, and then you have the yellow here is the is a sword. And then he has uh, some sort of instrument there uh, in his right hand that he is holding. So Ehud comes into Eglon, and he presents the tribute. So there would have been a lot of attendants. He may have had several with him, and there would have been a number of uh, court attendees to uh, Eglon, but we're reminded again here that he's a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished, that is when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So the picture here is he leaves the palace, he's leaving Jericho, and he sends the men on. And they had reached a point at Gilgal when this happened, so he sends away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. So what do we know about Gilgal? It is a term that relates to turning or something that is, that is round, but it is the location where after Israel had crossed over the Jordan at the fords of the Jordan, they come to Gilgal, and then they are going to have a covenant renewal ceremony there. So this is a very important site 
uh, for Israel to remind, reminding them of the covenant that they, that they have with God. And we're not exactly sure where Gilgal was located, but it wasn't far from Jericho. So he's going to turn back at Gilgal and go to the king where he says, I've got a secret message for you, O king. And the king says, keep silent. So we'll look at that in a second. Here we have the directions on a highway sign outside of Jericho to Gilgal. And here is a map. I hope you can... Uh, I tried to blow up these names in a little larger so you could, you could see them. You have one, two, three up here, four, five, six, and seven different guesses as to where Gilgal was located. One of these sites may have been Gilgal. There's a lot of you know, research and studies there. But Jericho is over here on the left. So you can see that none of these Gilgals are very far away. Down here is the Jordan and the fords of the Jordan. So whatever Gilgal was located, it's not far from Jericho, and it's not far from the fords. And there's only about maybe three or four miles from Jericho to uh, to the to the fords of the Jordan. So Ehud comes along, and in verse 19, he comes to the king and says, oh, I've got this secret message for you. Well, I've got a couple of more slides here. Here's another aerial slide looking down at the area of Jericho. Now, here we put the, you can see, here's the Jordan River back here, and you can look at this, and you can see where the, get a perspective on where these different sites are located. I would, I've always thought that it was probably one of these two sites. I don't know the archaeology, but it would seem to me that if the Israelites are crossing the Jordan here and coming towards Jericho, that it would be somewhere in this area, not to the northwest. So here's another slide indicating the location of the Jordan River. Gilgal generally here, and then Old Testament Jericho located there. So he turns back to go to Jericho, and he comes in and tells the king he's got a secret message. And the king then sends everyone away. The king says, keep silent. All who attended him left him. So that Ehud, the assassin, is now alone with Eglon. So how's he going to pull this off? Ehud comes to him while he's sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And so Eglon gets up and leans toward him in order to hear the message. Ehud has appealed to his religious superstition, and he's going to put him in a trap. Now, what's going to happen here in the next couple of verses is Ehud's going to stretch out his, with his left hand, he's going to reach down under his robe, and he's going to pull out his sword, and he's going to thrust it into the belly of Eglon. And we're told in verse 22, the handle went, also went in after the blade, so there's no um, uh, hasp on it, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And then it says, and literally the excrement 
the refuse came out. Now, for a long time, I thought what this is describing is that he's just opened up his bowels and they're coming out the wound. But that's not what's happening here. And I'm going to show this with the pictures. Here is a a possible location in one of the excavations of, of, of Jericho where this could have taken place. Uh, John Garstang, who's a famous uh, archaeologist, says this is a possibility. But what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is it doesn't take into account that curse of God on anyone who rebuilds Jericho. So I don't think this is the site for the Jericho where Eglon is staying. But nevertheless, we have a depiction here of what the palace would have looked like. You have stairs coming up into a porticoed antechamber. So there's columns along the the walls on the outside, and you have a doorway going into the uh, throne room where you would have an audience with the king. Over here you have a stairway that would go to uh, an upper story. So you come into the audience hall, and to approach the king, you come up here, and there's this secret area in the back, which is basically uh, the outhouse. The, la- the lavatory, the toilet is back there in the corner, so that if the king needs to take care of business, he can go back there and relieve himself. But there's an odd word that is used in the text, and it's this word, hamisdorona. The H-A at the beginning is just a definite article, so that's D, uh, like V. So you have Miss Dorona. Now, what is the Miss Dorona? Some have thought this was a vestibule, but it seems like it's some sort of architectural feature in relation to the latrine. And so what's happening is the king has been headed to the latrine, and he comes in and he assassinates him, and all the muscles in his abdomen just completely relax, and he voids his intestines, and it's just a nasty mess, and you can make up all kinds of little sayings about how Eglon died in his own dung. But now what is Ehud going to do to get out? He needs to escape, but if he goes out the doors here... If he goes out those doors, then the attendants of Eglon are going to be there. He's going to face Moabite soldiers. So what's he going to do? It appears that there's this this misdrone, which is the word here, and there's an opening down here. It's that there's some architectural feature here where there's a back way out of the throne room that goes near or under uh, the latrine. And this is how he escapes. And over here we have another depiction of this ancient Near Eastern house where you have our dwelling or palace where you have the upper room and then the lower room. And so this is the way he's, he's uh, gone up on his cool roof chamber and then he's going to uh, be assassinated. So uh, we have the description in verses 21 and 22 and then he has to escape. And here's some different uh, pictures of uh, Ehud assassinating uh, Eglon on the right, and then this one is from the Middle Ages, and of his stabbing uh, 
Eglon. Now, when he had gone out, the servants are embarrassed. They're waiting around, waiting for the king to come out. Well, he's taking a long time in the potty. When's he going to come out? And finally, they uh, start to jiggle the doors and realize they've been locked on the inside. And so they say, well, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. But they waited and waited, and they're starting to get quite worried. And finally, they managed to get the doors open, and the doors opened to that roof chamber. And therefore, they took the key, went in, and behold, they find him dead in his excrement. And this is where, and then they realize that Ehud has escaped. So these are just some different pictures here as Ehud escapes through the outhouse. Verse 26 says, now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. So here we have a picture of another idol, and this is an idol that would be set up, even though Gilgal was for the Lord, in these periods of apostasy, they would often put statues of the false gods in the holy places related to God's work in the history of Israel. And so Ehud escaped, and he goes beyond these idols that were set up by Gilgal, and he escapes to Syrah. This is up near Ophrah, which is where Gideon was from uh, later on. And he goes to that area, and he takes a shofar, and there must have been, word must have already spread that Eglon was dead. And when he blows the shofar, the signal is passed on, and the troops from Ephraim gather, and they come down from the hill country of Ephraim, which is in the center of Samaria, and they're going to come down and they will fight the Moabites. Now, what they're going to have to do is come down from, they're coming from this, from the west and northwest side, they're coming down to Jericho, and they will send one group of troops down to the fords and block their exit. But at the same time, they're not only blocking uh, the retreat of those that were with Eglon, but they are keeping reinforcements from coming across from the other side. In verse 28, we read, And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies into, uh, given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords in the Jordan opposite the Moab and did not allow anyone to cross, either escaping or coming as reinforcements. And verse 29, And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So this is the area here. You have Jericho over here on the left, Gilgal here, and then here's the fords of the Jordan, and the Moabites would be trying to flee across, and the Israeli uh, are the troops of the of Ephraim are here in the green arrows, uh, getting there ahead of them to block their retreat. And so the conclusion is 
that Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So we've got the time period under Kushan Rishathaim, which was about, I forget the exact number, but it was about 20 years. And then uh, they've got uh, 20, 18 years of oppression with Moab added to 80 years. So we've got about 140, 150 years go by. But are they at this overlapping or is one following the other? That's part of the problems in the chronology of Judges because we just don't know. But the point is that God is gracious. They've cried out to God. They didn't repent. They just cried out from his oppression, and God in his grace, as he does with us again and again, delivers us and provides for us even when we don't deserve it. Next time we're going to look at uh, Shamgar, and the, who is just one verse, but it's a hinge verse and important to look at. So after, now that we finish with Ehud, we'll look at the next judge, Shamgar, and set things up for our study of Deborah and Barak. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things in your word and to come to understand that you are our, our rock, you're our deliverer, you're the one who protects us. And even in our personal lives when we have been disobedient and we're under divine discipline, you still deal with us in grace you are disciplining us to pull us back into obedience and to teach us to walk faithfully with you. And Father, we pray that we might learn these lessons as we go along. And just as Israel would turn back to you, we pray that we might always turn to you seeking your sustenance and your protection. And especially at this time uh, in our nation, we pray that you would bring leaders to the forefront who have a biblical framework, a biblical understanding, and can exercise wise leadership in our school districts, a wise leadership in our cities and in our states and in the nation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.